How many of you guys are good at solving problems? How many of you are good at giving problems to the people around you to solve? Yeah, a few more hands. I'm going to start off with some easy problems. I just want you guys to spell a few things for me. So spell hop. All right, you got to cooperate here. Spell mop. Spell cop. What do you do at a green light? Oh, how many of you guys said stop? Come on now. It's go. You guys said you're good at solving problems. One of my (laughs) kids, I set you up for failure. It's all right. Uh, Boo. Uh, One of my kids asked me recently to open their vitamins because they couldn't figure out how to open it. And I pointed out that on the top, it said push and twist. And then I sarcastically said, I went to public school and I can figure out what to do. I send you to a private school and you can't figure out what to do. I'm spending way too much money. I need to talk to your teacher, Jason. Um, Let's be honest. Some people are better at solving problems than others. Uh, If you need help with your finances, it would be great to have someone like Warren Buffett come along. Uh, If you need help with your fashion, it would be fantastic to have someone like Heidi Klum or Rachel Zoe or a four-year-old wearing rain boots and a dress. Uh, If you need help with your fitness, it would be great to have someone like the Insanity Coach, Sean T. You won't like the process, but you will like the progress. There are some problems, though, that are so big that we need God to solve them. Does anyone have a problem like that this morning? Don't look at them, but you have a problem like that. Let's stand and read our theme verse, Isaiah chapter 64, verse 1. And we're going to actually camp out in Isaiah 64 this morning. Oh, that you would rend the heavens and come down, that the mountains would tremble before you. Let's read that one more time. Oh, that you would rend the heavens and come down, that the mountains would tremble before you. How many of you guys have ever felt that way? And you may be seated. You just want God to just come down and get involved in whatever it is that you're facing. Now, this is a dangerous prayer. Because one of the first things God will do when he shows up is he will hand you some cleaning supplies. He'll say, let's deal with your soul before we deal with your goals. He starts pointing out some of the things that we've become comfortable with. You need to Windex your entertainment. Jesus wouldn't feel comfortable watching that show with you. Anything on HB, no, or Cinemax, S-I-N-A-Max. You need to take a vacuum to your friendships. They are toxic and holding you back. They hear Yanni rather than Laurel. Clearly that's wrong. You need to waterproof the basement because you've allowed fear and doubt to eat away at your foundation. The good news is that God will come in no matter how messy your life. But like Mr. Clean, he won't leave it that way. Mr. Clean will clean up dirt and grime and grease in just one minute. Mr. Clean will clean your whole house and everything that's in it. God does the same thing. He moves in and he just starts going to work. Isaiah 64, 1. Oh, that you would run the heavens and come down, that the mountains would tremble before you. Have you ever wanted God to show up and show off? Not just to prove something, but to move something, to part the waters, to heal the barren womb, to shut the mouth of the lions, defeat the giant, to defy physics, to end school shootings, to do what only God can do. Israel is in trouble when Isaiah prays us. They needed God to make a grand entrance. Isaiah wants God to do just what he did at Mount Sinai. Exodus chapter 19, verse 18. Mount Sinai was covered with smoke because the Lord descended on it in fire. The smoke billowed up from it like smoke from a furnace, and the whole mountain trembled violently. 
Isaiah reasons that if God did it before, he can do it again. Miracles don't have an expiration date. I'm going to say that again. Miracles don't have an expiration date. If he did it before, he can do it again. The late night comedian Jimmy Kimmel had a prank pulled on him this last week. Once a year, his wife surprises him in the middle of the night. She invites over a celebrity like Rihanna or Miley Cyrus to come sing him awake. So they bring in a full band while he is fast asleep, and they sing one of their hit songs as loud as they can. I came in like a wrecking ball. First, I would rather have a rooster right next to my ear wake me up in the morning. Second, those are grounds for divorce because there's not enough therapy to fix that. Israel is spiritually sleeping and needs God to wake them up. So Isaiah desperately prays, oh, that you would rend the heavens and come down. I read a book this last week by a pastor named Jim Cimbala. He took over an inner city church and he took it from 40 people in the 1970s to 10,000 people. Their choir has won several Grammy Awards. But while the church was thriving, his family was hurting. They took a big hit. Their 16-year-old daughter moved in with her boyfriend, Satan. I see some of you guys have boys and girls who've dated the same person. And, and she ran as far away from God as possible for two years. And at one of their Tuesday night prayer meetings, a lady approached the pastor and said, I feel like we need to pray for your daughter tonight. So the whole meeting became all about this girl. 48 hours later, she collapses on the kitchen floor. And she says, Dad, who was praying for me Tuesday night? I had a dream where I was falling into this abyss, separated from God, and I woke up knowing that if I didn't change that that was my future, who was praying for me Tuesday night? In that moment, her life did a 180. God rent the heavens and came down. She went off to college, and she did the unthinkable. She married a minister. <laughs> if God did that for them, he can do it for you. In the 1820s, Charles Finney preached in New York where more than 100,000 people came to Christ in one year. In one year's time, we get excited if like a dozen. You know, 100,000 in one year. The whole community was stirred. The Sabbath was honored. The sanctuaries were packed with happy worshipers. There was a drop in crime. The courts had little to do, and the jail was nearly empty for a couple years afterwards. God rent the heavens and came down. And when God comes down, hope goes up. Isaiah 64, 3. For when you did awesome things that we did not expect. I love that phrase. For when you did awesome things that we did not expect, you came down and the mountains trembled before you. I love that phrase. You did awesome things that we did not expect. The day after I read that phrase this last week, I found an article on Twitter titled, Superheroes are the, are, Aren't the Only Symbols of Hope. And I started reading it. And I said, this is really good, but it sounds kind of familiar. Then I saw the author by Dan Stanford. <laughs> it was an excerpt from my book that Lifeway put out without telling me. <laughs> and it was this moment where like, God winked. He says, I've got things up my sleeves that you know nothing about. There are several times where God did this throughout Israel's history. God tells Moses, I have heard the cry of my people and I have come down to rescue them. Mark picks this up in Mark chapter 1, verse 10. It says, just as Jesus was coming up out of the water, and notice the phrase here, he saw heaven being torn open 
and the Spirit descending on him like a dove. God rent the heavens and came down. Do you know what book of the Bible Jesus quotes more than any other? Isaiah. He quotes Isaiah more than any other. In fact, some people call it the mini Bible because it's 66 chapters and the Bible is 66 books of the Bible. Isaiah is divided into two sections, 39 and then 27. The Bible is divided in the same way. And so you see here that the heavens are rent and God comes down. Have you ever fallen into the pattern of praying without expecting? The prayers sound more like wishing upon a star, a birthday cake, or a wishbone. You're asking God to rend the heavens, but you don't really expect him to show up. It's kind of like that friend that you always invite to the parties to be polite, but you know they'll never show up. Aristotle referred to God as the unmoved mover. Confucius referred to God as the way. Deus referred to God as the clockmaker. The view is that God is transcendent, he's real, but he doesn't get involved. God is powerful, but he's not present. He's the Houdini dad. He makes the kids, then disappears. He promises to show up for birthdays and holidays, but something always comes up. Satan whispers, God is real, but he won't heal. God is there, but he won't answer prayer. God is in the sky, but he won't pop by. God is a mystery who doesn't get involved in history. But that's not the biblical view of God. Isaiah chapter 64, verse 4 through 5 goes on. Since ancient times, no one has heard, no ear has perceived, no eye has seen any God besides you who acts on behalf of those who wait for him. He acts on behalf of those who wait for him, and you come to help those who gladly do right. See, God rends the heavens for those who wait for him and those who wait on him. God rends the heaven for those who wait for him and wait on him. You see, we've been in a series on the fruit of the Spirit, nine characteristics that we want to define our lives, and we've gone through most of them. And this morning, I want to talk briefly about goodness. Everyone say goodness. When I was growing up, I had a friend who was a big grammar nerd, and I hated him because he corrected your grammar all the time. He would ask you, how are you? And I would say, I'm good. In fact, I'm G-double-O-D good. To which he would say, you mean you're well. Good has to do with morals. Well has to do with the state of being. To which I would say, now I'm not good or well, and I hate you. (laughs) From the time we're born, we start labeling things good or bad. But we're not very good at it. Take kids. Most kids would label vegetables bad. Chicken nuggets from McDonald's, good. Homework is bad. Fortnite is good. (laughs) Cats are bad. Dogs are, we got that one right. How do we determine what's good or bad as Christians? Is it how we feel about it? Is it what our friends say? Is it what's politically correct? God should define what is good. Hebrews 5, 13 through 14 says, Anyone who lives on milk, being still an infant, is not acquainted with the teaching about righteousness. But solid food is for the mature, who by constant use have trained themselves to distinguish good from evil. It takes time to realize, you know what? Chicken nuggets aren't as good as I thought they were. Vegetables are actually kind of good for me. You know, video games aren't as good as I thought they were. Homework is actually kind of good for me. And we get this kind of flip-flop takes place. What God says is good is what matters most. 
But here's the deal. What God said is good often goes contrary to what we think is good in the moment. There's a way that seems right to a man, but in the end, it leads to death. I've been thinking about momentum lately. Mass times velocity equals momentum. How many of you guys have ever ridden on a merry-go-round? One of those merry-go-rounds at the park that spins around and around and around. As I've gotten older and dizziness just comes from standing up, I don't understand the point of getting on something to intentionally make me dizzy. I was at a park with a couple of dads a few years ago, and several kids asked us if we would push the merry-go-round for them. Have you ever had one of those friends that just does everything to the extreme? One of my friends was that way. And so we push these kids, but he is just aggressively pushing as hard as he can. And it's like we put WD-40 on this thing. It is just spinning at a rocket's pace, and kids start flying off of it. And so we have to intervene to try and catch kids and slow this thing down. But here's the thing with one of those merry-go-rounds is that no matter how fast you push it, if you let go, it eventually begins to slow down and eventually stop. In life, there are times when we feel like we're making progress, that there's momentum. There's moments where we feel like we've plateaued. Sometimes we feel like we've gone backwards. And sometimes we feel like we're just flying off because some jerk pushed it too hard. Anyone there this morning? <laughs> when I don't feel like I'm making progress, I get depressed. When I feel like there's an area of my life where I've kind of plateaued or I'm moving backwards, it bothers me. You see, when you're younger, there's constant mile markers. You know, I'm big enough now to ride the roller coaster. I'm old enough to have my driver's license. I'm old enough to graduate. I'm old enough for adult Tylenol, whatever your mile marker is. There comes a point in your life, though, where the goals are harder to see, where you feel like momentum shifts and you start moving backwards. Mentally, you start forgetting things. What were we talking about? Physically, it starts becoming an adventure just getting off the couch. Your vitamins get bigger and bigger. Financially, you're still taking care of your adult children. Sore subject. Ever since we started this church, we've experienced momentum. You can't tell this morning because it's Memorial Day weekend. But every year, there's been more people than the year before. And it's been exciting. And people will ask me, Dan, how do you do it? And I'm like, I don't know. God. <laughs> Book of Acts. And he added to their number daily those who were being saved. We don't do anything. We just show up in God. But in the past six months, we've hit a ceiling for the first time where we look at the numbers and they're actually down a little bit from what they were the year before. And it's easy to label it bad. Everyone say that with me. Bad. But can I tell you something? Jesus was the master of downsizing. I want you to think about that. Every time Jesus started getting like a really good crowd, what would Jesus do? Ruin it. He would get up and he'd say something like, all right, I want everyone to eat my flesh and drink my blood. <laughs> For reals, he says that. Now, he means communion. He could have explained it, but he doesn't. <laughs> and what does the crowd do? They're like, Jesus, I was into the water into wine thing, <laughs> but I'm not into the blood into wine thing, so you are on your own. Here's the deal. Jesus never defines crowds as good. He defines Christ-like as good. Jesus never defines crowds as good. 
He defines Christ-like as good. His goal was never to get people to show up, but to grow up. Somebody better tattoo that on their body this week. I'm just kidding. Don't, don't actually go do that. I'm just, that was just me being funny. <laughs> ah, what's wrong with me? Jesus would rather a handful of fully committed individuals opposed to millions of people who are half-hearted. You see, what we interpret as bad is sometimes good. And what we define as good is sometimes bad. You see, we've all had that person we dated that we regret. You know, we thought that they were that, all that in a bag of chips, and we're like convincing mom and dad, Mom, Dad, they're awesome. Then a few months later, what happened? Oh, dear God, I wish you would have intervened. <laughs> or, or there was that job that was an epic mistake, or that triple dog dare that we should have just ignored, or that Netflix show that we binge watched only to be severely disappointed by the ending. We need God to define what is good in our life. We need him to define for us because it's those who wait for God and delight in doing good that he kicks the doors open. For Isaiah goes on to say, and this is what's interesting to me, and this is one of the reasons why I love this passage so much. So, so he's praying, he's like, God, come down. He's like, these are the kind of people that you come down for. Then all of a sudden he thinks about the context of where Israel's at at this point. He's like, oh yeah, we're not really good at delighting in God's best these days. We're not really good at waiting for God. And so he goes on, he says, all of us have become like one who is unclean. This is verse six. And all our righteous acts are like filthy rags. We all shrivel up like a leaf and like the wind, our sins sweep us away. Isaiah recognized that even on our best days, we get it wrong. We don't always put a smile on God's face. But fortunately for us, he doesn't stop there. He goes on to verse eight. Yet you, Lord, are our Father. I want you to say that with me. Yet you, Lord, are our Father. We are the clay. You are the potter. We are all the work of your hand. God shows up not because of who you are, but because of who he is. He doesn't show up because of how good you are, but because of how great he is. Now, now for some of us, if I were to say that he's your heavenly Father, that doesn't bring you comfort because your dad was abusive or absent. My dad reminded me of Sesame Street. He had the sunny disposition of Oscar the Grouch. You guys remember Oscar? Oscar spent most of his time just hiding out in the garbage can, but then he would pop up just in time to have a sarcastic comment like it's a garbage can, not a garbage can. My dad spent most of his time at work or watching the Weather Channel, often hiding in plain sight, but he would emerge just in time for a sarcastic comment to let you know what he didn't like about your report card, the bike in the driveway, or the missing TV remote that no one could get up and just push the button manually. But while my dad reminded me of Oscar the Grouch, I wanted him to be more like Snuffleupagus. Of all the people who lived on Sesame Street, he was the most lovable. He seemed to wear an invisible sign that said, free hugs. I once told my wife that if I had a rapper name, it would be Mr. Snuggle Up and Kiss. <laughs> she mocked me. I have a picture of me as a baby laying on my dad's bare chest while he napped on a couch. And I wish that were the only picture I had. A son with his dad, safe, secure, loved. But most of the time, my dad was silent, moody, and distant. And sometimes that's how I see God, if I were to be honest. He's in the room, but he's preoccupied with the Weather Channel. 
He's silent until I do something wrong, and then like Oscar the Grouch, he pops out of the can. But listen to how Isaiah describes God's love. Isaiah chapter 49, verse 16. I have engraved you in the palm of my hands. I'm going to say that again. This is God talking to Israel in their state of rebellion. I have engraved you in the palm of my hands. You see, our relationship with God is not written in Etch-A-Sketch. As soon as our world is shaken, our name disappears. God's not sitting in heaven plucking flowers. I love him. I love him not. I love him. I love him not. Last Monday night, I was stressed and depressed. And I said to God, I've had all I can stands and I can't stands no more. And in that very moment, I get a text message randomly from Tim Mitchell. God put you on my mind and I'm praying for you. God read in the heavens and came down. See, while Isaiah's statement, I have engraved you in the palm of my hands, may have sounded metaphorical, it became physical when Jesus was nailed to a cross. And for you, he died. And every time he looks at those nail-scarred hands, he sees you. I have engraved you in the palm of my hands. That's how much I love you. See, why would we fear his letting us go when he fought so hard to grab on? God holds you with a kung fu grip. This is why Isaiah confidently prays, rend the heavens and come down. Don't do it because of what we've done. Don't do it because of who we are. Do it because you are our Father and you've engraved us in the palm of your hand, which puts a whole new spin on that song. He holds, he holds the whole world in his hands. He holds the whole world in his hands. The worship team is going to come back up and lead us in one final song. But before they do, I just want to make mention that this Monday is Memorial Day. And I just want you to be mindful of the sacrifice that has been made for us as a country so that we might have the freedom so that we can come and worship on a Sunday morning. But at the same time, remember the sacrifice that Jesus made so that you might have freedom spiritually, that you might have eternal life spiritually, that God is able to look at the palm of his hands and see just how much he loves you. Let's pray. Father, we thank you that you are head over heels in love with us. That if you had a wallet, our picture would be in it. Father, that while we feel like we have to fight to rend the heavens, it is you who, in fact, tore the veil as Christ was crucified, symbolizing that you're no longer just hanging out in some sacred space, but that you have infiltrated every corner of our lives and that we couldn't hide from you even if we wanted to, that you are fully present. And Father, I pray that you would help us to lean into you, to know you, to love you, to wait for you, and to wait on you. In your name, amen.